When I said it's an alphabetical poem, it, I didn't really think that might confuse some people. It didn't look very alphabetical, did it? But uh, if we were singing it in Hebrew, it would be. But then it would be pretty meaningless to nearly all of us. Now, in the half term that's just gone, my family visited two other families. One was quiet, orderly, neat and calm. And the other was loud and untidy and a bit chaotic. And I have to add, neither of them were from Hollywell, in case you're wondering. Now, which family was it? Neither of them were from around here. Families have a flavour or a character to them. Families have, well, the relationships in families differ. And the church is a family. What should the church's flavour, its character, its relationships be like? Well, part of the reason why 1 Timothy was written was to tell us what the church's flavour, its character, its relationships should be like. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. There are page numbers on the pink sheets. The page numbers are for chapter 5, but chapter 3 is obviously near there. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Why was this letter we call 1 Timothy written? Verse 14 says, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. Notice that, God's household, his family. The church is a family. This letter is written so that we should, in God's family, conduct ourselves rightly, have the right relationships. And we now get on in our series to chapter 5. And chapter 5 is particularly about relationships between different types of people in God's family. And we're going to go through verses 1 to 16 this evening to see how these relationships are to be characterised by caring realism. Caring realism. Uh, Where we're going with this is on the back of the pink sheet, although I have to admit it won't be quite the same as that. There have been some little adjustments So, first of all, we find in this chapter, the church is to be caring about change and realistic about relationships. Verse 1 and 2. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Now, is church like going to the cinema? Is church like going to the cinema? At the cinema, you watch the film, and you may or may not find it interesting and entertaining, and you may or may not learn something. And then off you go, and no one is going to tell you that you ought to change unless your phone goes off or your talking in the film disturbs them. Because you're just there to see the show. And going to church can be like that. We just turn up, see the show. It may or may not be interesting. You may or may not learn something and off we go. But it shouldn't be like that. Because verse 1 and 2 here tell us church is a place where people should relate to each other like a family. There are fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. And it tells us that church is a place where you're expected to change. You can expect to be rebuked and exhorted. Now, why would you rebuke or exhort someone? 
Well, because they need to change. And that's the sort of thing that's expected to happen in a church. So if we move on a couple of pages to when Paul was about to die and he's passing on the work to Timothy and he tells him what to do in 2 Timothy, this time in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the very last recorded words of Paul, he says in verse 1 and 2, 2 Timothy chapter 4, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, so he's laying it on, isn't he, that this is really serious, I give you this charge, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Paul's going to be taken off the scene, he reckons. He's about to be executed, probably. This is what he wants to happen, carrying on the work. Correct, rebuke, encourage, instruct. That's the sort of thing the church is to be characterised by. Because it's not a cinema where we just turn up and enjoy the show or endure the show. It's a place that's to be like a family where people are changing. So if you don't want to change, you better keep away from the church. If you don't want to ever be rebuked, you better keep away from the church. And if you aren't ever rebuked, we're probably not doing our job properly as a church. Church is a place caring about change. But as we do that, as we care about change, we must be realistic about relationships. And we get that also from these verses. We want people to change, we want ourselves to change. But we're not speaking to each other like a sergeant major telling a soldier what to do or even like a teacher getting a pupil to change. Our verses say we're speaking to each other like members of a family. In fact, as members of a family because the church is God's household. And that means there's a care and respect that you may not get in some relationships. And verses 1 and 2 remind us, in a family there are different people. There are fathers and mothers who deserve more respect than brothers and sisters. You know, I think, how can one lot of people deserve more respect than others? But that's God's way and it's here. They deserve a different respect. I'd suggest more respect. Older people still need to change. Older people here don't think you've got past needing to change. That won't happen until you're in heaven. But Timothy is told, speak to them like fathers and mothers, with respect. Now, we're in a society that sounds odd to, because we're in a society that respects youth more than age. So if you want your message to be credible, you get it told by a Swedish schoolgirl, not a man in his 70s. Because a Swedish schoolgirl is going to have more credibility than a man in his 70s in our society, because we've got our respect completely the wrong way round. But the church should be countercultural, a family where age is respected. Not older people aren't expected to change anymore. No, no, still change is needed. But Timothy is told, speak to the older people differently to how you'd speak to people the same age as you. There is to be respect. Be realistic about relationships. Here's another way, as we want people to change, we must be realistic about relationships. Have a look at the end of verse 2. Speak to the younger women as sisters 
with absolute purity. The church isn't a cinema just to turn up to. It's a family where people interact. But make sure that interaction is with absolute purity. It's realistic here about relationships. So many pastors have gone from pastoring a woman to committing adultery with that woman and wrecked their lives and their families and their church. Mike Pence, the vice president in the USA, he was mocked in the media a couple of years back for having a rule that he wouldn't go out for a meal with a woman who wasn't his wife if it was just the two of them. And people mocked him for that. How ridiculous. But I don't really understand why he was mocked. It sounds eminently sensible to me. And I think all the things that have been seen about men in power abusing their position over women actually back what he's been doing. If you say, well, but it says here, treat younger women as sisters. And actually, I would go out for a meal with my sister. Well, no, come on, don't be silly. Because that woman at church is not your natural sister. And that makes a difference. The difference is the right horror we have at incest, to put it bluntly, if you weren't getting it. Now, some people think Christians are beyond needing that caution. We shouldn't need to worry about these things. We're Christians. But if you think like that, you are foolish and you're a danger. So take notice of this. The church is a place where we care about change, but we must be realistic about relationships while we do it. And secondly, the church is a place where we should be caring about needs and realistic about dangers. This is verses 3 to 16. So this is a much bigger chunk now, verses 3 to 16. Here we have a quite detailed section about widows. Why all this attention to widows? Well, because the Bible shows that God cares for widows. So if we start at the beginning of the Bible, God's law, we have God's people told to care for widows. We move on to the Psalms and we have God called a defender of widows. You move on to the prophets and you find the prophets rebuking God's people when they didn't care for widows. You move on to the Gospels and you find Jesus consistently showing compassion to widows. You move on to Acts and you find the church had a system for looking after widows. You move on to almost the end of the Bible in James and you find he says, Pure religion and undefiled is this, to care for widows in their need. Why why all this about widows? Well, because throughout most of history, they've been among the most vulnerable and needy people. And God cares for the vulnerable and the needy. Do you? How? Do we as a church? How? Have a think about that. Tell the elders of the church your thoughts about that because here it's evident from 1 Timothy 5 that we should care not just for widows but for all the vulnerable and needy who we are in contact with. So what could and should we be doing for the needy who are around us? I think it's worth bearing in mind that loneliness is one of the biggest needs in our society. So we as a church should be thinking, what could and should we be doing for the vulnerable and needy? 
Paul says, I'm writing so you know how to conduct yourself in God's family. And he gives a chunk of space to having a thought out, properly organised system for caring for the needy. So it must matter. And we must take notice. But one of the reasons it takes up this much space is because the church needs to be, while it's caring for the needy, realistic about dangers. And we're warned here about some of the dangers to look out for when caring for the needy. So let's go through them now. We're not going to go through everything in this rather complicated section. But let's see some of the dangers that are being warned about while we care for the needy. So obviously this is only going to be relevant if we do what the Bible says and care for the needy. We must watch out for this danger, discouraging family responsibilities. Verse 4. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. Or verse 8, put very stridently, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Don't try to get round that by I made a profession of faith all those years ago. So the church is to step in where there isn't a natural family to care for a needy person or where in some other way they are isolated and detached from other help. But where there is a natural family, that should be taking responsibility. Now, here again is an opportunity to be countercultural. Let's give you an example. Jade has been caring for her elderly mother for two years. And there have been many times when she's missed out on all sorts of things because she's looking after her mother. Missed out on going out with friends and all sorts of opportunities because it takes time to care for an elderly mother. And the work has not been glamorous. Washing an elderly lady who isn't always grateful for it. And Jade says, these past two years, my life has been on hold. These two, last two years, it's as if my life has been put on hold. What do you think of that comment? Now, I don't want to be insensitive and we must sympathise with the difficulties. But my life has been on hold. What does that say life is about? Does she mean my plans for how I want my life to go have been on hold? Or does she mean a life of Christ-likeness has been put on hold? It sounds to me like caring for her mother in that way is a very good example of Christ-likeness. So let's be countercultural. Caring for families. Isn't that, in many ways, what life is, or an example of what life is about? What is life about? Being like Christ putting ourselves out for others. Caring within families has high value in God's eyes. So the church, as it cares, which it should, must watch out for not discouraging the work of and the place of families. Here's another danger, encouraging idleness. Encouraging idleness. Verse 5, the widow who really is in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Paul is saying, help those really in need and watch out for those taking advantage of it so they can be idle and just please themselves. 
And then in verse 13 he warns, this idleness has often led to being gossipy busybodies. Let's all make sure that we've got enough to occupy our attention and keep us busy to stop us being gossipy busybodies. Here's another thing that Paul warns against. As we care for people with need, we've got to watch out for people coming under judgment. Now, this one's a bit harder to work out. It must be admitted, chapter 5 is quite a hard chapter. And to understand this, you've got to remember, Paul didn't write manuals for running a church. He wrote letters to particular situations. That struck me as Anthony was reading it to us and we got to verse 23. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine. That isn't meant to be some sort of manual for all church leaders at all times. Don't drink water, drink wine. It's written to a specific situation. These letters were written to specific situations. And usually we have to do some detective work to discover quite what is this situation. So we have to delve into quite what was this issue about tongues in Corinth. Quite what were the false teachers doing in Galatia. Quite what were those funny beliefs about Christ's return going on in Thessalonica. And it's similar here. We need to do some detective work. Quite what was going on there? Well, it seems that there were widows who were being a problem in Ephesus, probably led astray by the false teachers. But 2 Timothy seems to indicate the false teachers had somehow particularly got a hold over some of the widows there. They're in Ephesus and causing a problem. And so, verse 11 says, As for younger widows, don't put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Now, there's nothing wrong with a widow wanting to marry. In fact, in verse 14, Paul recommends that they get on and marry if it's suitable for them. And there's no evidence that there were widows who had taken a pledge that they never would marry and were put on a list of widows doing work in the church, something like, a set of nuns, that came centuries later. There's no evidence that's going on here. It seems to simply be that there were people put on a list of widows who were being cared for by the church. But some were taking advantage of it. And some had been led astray by false teachers. And problems were occurring. And so when it says in verse, is it verse 12, they've left, they've broken their first pledge, The word pledge there is actually just the word for faith. And it's probably better translated, they've left their former faith. They seem to be trusting Christ, now they've walked off from him. And the way it's put so strongly by Paul seems to say their desire to marry has overcome their dedication to Christ. They're putting getting married above dedication to Christ and probably even going off after marrying an unbeliever. And Paul is warning about the danger of enrolling people on a system to care for widows who either had turned from Christ or are in danger of turning from Christ. Now, whatever are the details here that we don't know, and there is quite a lot we don't know, the thing we do know is it is put in stark and strong terms here. Have a look at verse 6. Verse 6, But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead, 
even while she lives. These widows have gone off away from Christ to live for what pleases them. He says, well, they may be technically alive, but they're dead spiritually. Verse 8, these people who are not looking after their family properly, they've abandoned, they've denied the faith. They're worse than unbelievers. These people, verse 15, who are messing around in this way, have already turned away to follow Satan. Now, there's lots of detail about quite what's going on here that we don't know, but we do know this. Paul says, oh boy, this really does matter. As you read the Bible, you don't find a laid-back, well, it would be nice if you didn't do that, but never mind, because you're saved anyway. You never find that. Oh, it would be better if you didn't go off after that, but never mind, you're saved, you'll be all right. Never find that. Instead, you find this sense of urgency. Don't do that. You're turning away to follow Satan. You're denying the faith. You're going the way of death. We are not involved in a laid-back hobby. Christian living is either deadly serious and of eternal consequence, or it's a complete waste of time. Find something better to do. And so all of this could, in a sense, be put as this danger is being warned against, the danger of harming the church's witness. One of the reasons Paul gives so much space to this issue here, so much care to getting right how they look after widows, is getting it wrong harms the church's witness. It gives a bad reputation. Have a look at verse 14. So I counsel younger widows to marry to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity to slander. Now again, it's not saying that all younger widows must marry. It's a specific situation and a specific trouble being created. But you can see there the concern is, don't give the enemy ground to slander. Watch over the church's reputation. We mustn't harm our witness. So they need to be careful. They need to care, but they need to be careful about how they care. Now, I think it's worth thinking about how this uh, fits together with some other things we read in the New Testament. So, do you remember in Acts chapter 2 and chapter 4, well, chapter 2 through to chapter 4, you have the part of the church's witness is the way that they care for the needy. They share their money. There's this open, trusting, generous sharing so that there are no needy among them. And it all sounds rather free and easy. And in 1 Timothy 5, it sounds like it's being tightened up. Not reducing the generosity and the care, but increasing the carefulness. Even putting some rules in place and some systems in place because people had been abusing the generosity and their selfish, idle, indulgent lives had been harming the church's witness. We must be caring about needs, but realistic about the dangers that this can bring if we really are generously doing it. One more pair, and this will be more briefly. So we've had, we are to be caring about change, but realistic about relationships as we do it. We're to be caring about needs, but realistic about the dangers as we do it. And then thirdly, we are to be a caring family that cares about families. 
So as you read chapter 5, as in so many other places in the New Testament, it's clear that the church is far more than just a set of meetings. Turn up to the meeting and off you go and you've done your bit. No, it's far more than just a group of people listening to preaching. Good though preaching is, it's a caring family. You're not being part of the church if you're just turning up, listening and off you go without any care for others in the church. Now, with us all having different situations, how we can care for others is different. But is there care for others from you? Are you part of the church being a caring family? But the church, we find here, doesn't replace the natural family. It doesn't get us all living in a commune. It shouldn't take us away from family responsibilities. So chapter 5, we have the church is a caring family, but we have an awful lot about us caring for our families. So verse 4 again. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so, so repaying their grandparents and parents for this is pleasing to God. It isn't all just about those with children. Think of this. You can please God by how you care for your parents or your grandparents. Verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family. Think of a stone dropped into a pond. You've all seen it, haven't you? Those circles that ripple out. Circles expanding out and out. And you have those circles going out from you. There's immediate family. There's wider relatives. Then there's the church. And then if we were to read Galatians, it says there's also others outside the church. And the closer the circle to you, the higher your responsibility to care for them. Circles rippling out from you and where people are in that circle affects your responsibility to them. Immediate family, wider relatives, the church, others outside the church. I heard of a woman who was converted after marrying and having children and understandably she threw herself into everything she could at church and it was all wonderful And her husband said, she seems to have left me for this other husband called Jesus. Because the husband felt like she'd gone off for this other husband. This new husband she's got called Jesus. Well, verse 14 says, So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. In other words, God still cares about our families. And we should be seen to be those who care for our families and take seriously our responsibilities in them. It seems the false teachers here in Ephesus thought that they were more spiritual. They were above all of these ordinary daily family things. And Chapter 5 says, no, ordinary daily family life is a great way to serve and honour God. Not the only way, but a great way. We must be a caring family, as a church, that cares about families and takes seriously our responsibilities in them. Now, it's a bad sign when a Muslim or a Jehovah's Witness could agree with nearly everything in a sermon. And I suspect that a a Jehovah's Witness or a Muslim could agree with a lot that I've said this evening. So, what is going to make this a Christian message? 
Not one that any Muslim or Jehovah's Witness could agree with. Well, remember the aim back in chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. The aim was that we should know how we ought to conduct ourselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. The foundation, it defends truth, and the pillar, it displays truth. But what is that truth? Well, verse 16 tells us. Verse 16 says that truth is all about Jesus. The truth we're to display is all about him. We are to do these things in chapter 5 to display him to the world. So we are to care for the needy, to display the love of the one who gave himself for us needy sinners. I say us needy sinners, does that include you? Anyone here tonight who hasn't yet put their trust in him and admitted, I'm a needy sinner and I need this Jesus. He came for needy sinners. We as a church are to care for the needy, to display his love. We are to appropriately give and take correction. Notice the word appropriately, give and take correction, because we are sinners Jesus died for. And that means we need change and we still need to change. And it means we're loved and secure. Jesus died for us. And so we can take being corrected because we know we're secure in his love. We are to do our family responsibilities, whatever they might be for our different family situations, because Jesus didn't come to abolish what God put in place in Genesis 1 and 2. He came to mend it. We are to be a caring family Because Jesus came to unite all sorts of people from all sorts of different backgrounds into one big new family, the family of God. So, although the Lord Jesus is hardly mentioned in 1 Timothy 5, hardly at all mentioned, it's all about displaying the Lord Jesus to a world that needs him. Will you be part of us displaying him?